Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded on Friday, February 22nd, 2019, live from the Etel West Trade Show here in semi-sunny Palm Desert. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and unfortunately, Scott is trapped on a plane, so we're going to talk about him and assign him a bunch of action items. Great. Uh, one of the top trends we always cover on the show is direct-to-consumer brands, and so we're excited to have on the show one of the top uh, DTC companies in the apparel industry, Bombas. So joining us from Bombas, we have the CEO and co-founder, Dave Heath. Hi. Thank you. Hey, Dave. Thanks very much for being on the show. Uh, longtime listeners will know we always like to get things started by getting a little bit of a, a background about how you, you came to your current role. Can you, you tell us a little bit about your bio? Yeah. So... Uh Born and raised in New York. No, I don't think we need to go back that far. Um, but uh, so actually my dad's an entrepreneur. So very early on, I, I knew that entrepreneurship was something that I uh, I wanted to do. I was very inspired by uh, him and watching him build a business from the basement of our house to you know something that uh, I think we were all very proud of. Um, I ended up going to school for entrepreneurship at Babson College. And then upon graduation... Um, I always I found that every job I had I kind of ended up working for a smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller company. Uh, ultimately landed at a media company where I was the seventh employee. Uh, ironically enough, where I ended up meeting one of my co-founders, uh, Randy Goldberg. Um, spent six years there. Uh, we developed our relationship and kind of always shared kind of this mutual uh, passion for wanting to start a business together. One day, um, we. Developed business plans for numerous, you know, ideas ranging from services to tech to product, and ultimately, uh, it was kind of one of these moments of fate that I think uh, led us to where we are today. Uh, I happened to be scrolling on Facebook back in 2011. I came across a quote that said that socks were the number one most requested clothing item at homeless shelters, and. I immediately wasn't like, oh, my God, there's a business to be had here. Uh, I just kind of stopped me in my tracks, and I was like, wow, that's pretty sad. You know, Something that I've never spent more than a second of my life or day thinking about uh, is perceived as a luxury item for somebody else. Uh, so I remember walking over to Randy's desk, and I remember sharing the quote with him. And then over the next couple of weeks, we both found that we just couldn't shake uh, this idea. And we'd obviously followed uh, entrepreneurship and you know the trends that were happening in the startup world. And uh, Tom's was in their fifth year of business and growing incredibly fast. Uh, where we Parker had just announced that they had launched about six months prior and kind of, again, reinvigorated the conversation around the one-for-one -one business model because when Morby first launched – they were one-for-one one eyewear. That was kind of their their main shtick. They've more positioned to be a fashion brand uh, these days. But uh, that's when kind of the light bulb went off. And we were like, huh, what if we created a company where we donated a pair of socks for every pair of socks that we sold uh, to help kind of solve this, this problem in the homelessness community? Um, and then we were like, okay, well, what, are we, what, what type of sock are we going to create? Um, how are we going to create, you know, carve out our place in the, in the market? And so we spent the next two years looking at, you know, doing research and development, trying every pair of sock on in the market. And ultimately what we landed on was, uh, you know, 
a, a much more comfortable and innovative kind of everyday casual athletic sock. So at the time, brands like Happy Socks and Paul Smith uh, were coming out with these brightly colored dress socks and you know funky dress socks for men were a trend. Um, Randy and I were like startup guys. We wore jeans and sneakers to work every day. And you were tube socks up till then, right? Oh, yeah, that, yeah, totally, I totally. Um, you know, Walmart, 12-pack type of thing. Um, and so what we ended up realizing was that there was this large gap in the athletic market where you'd either buy a 12-pack from Walmart uh, or you'd buy these individual premium price products that were really aimed towards runners and cyclists and basketball players and hikers um, that were costing $15, $18, $20, $38 dollars a pair. And so I was like, well, what delineates a $38 pair of socks from a $2 pair of socks? So all of this technology and innovation, seamless toe, arch support, comfort footbed, you know, high-quality fabric, you know, articulation in the heel, um, amounted to actually a lot more comfort just in everyday wear. But I was realizing that all of these sock companies were marketing all of these innovations just towards the enthusiasts. And kind of I think our light bulb moment or our aha, our, our aha moment was, well, what if we took all of those innovations and marketed them towards the mass market consumer and pitched, you know, why a seamless toe was better for standing on your feet every day as a nurse or, you know, a firefighter or a baker or, you know, a mom chasing after her kids or a school teacher. Um, and thus Bombus was born and uh, we launched the company back in August of 2013 uh, and here we are five and a half years later. We've just donated, I believe, our 15 millionth pair of socks. Um, team wow. has grown significantly. We continue to double year over year in sales. Yeah, it's been a wild ride. That's awesome. Um, I, I particularly like uh, there's some pesky details that might have stopped some people from pursuing that, like – expertise in like design or manufacturing or supply yeah. chain or, or, or a bunch of stuff I didn't hear you mention having a, having a rich background in. Did not. Did uh, not at all. Yeah. So I'm sort of curious, uh, was Bombus able to happen because those things are now easier to outsource and you're able to leverage that? Or did you guys just jump in and learn how to do stuff and make some mistakes and kind of grow the expertise organically. Yeah, I think it was a I think it was a mix of luck and the fact that we didn't have any expertise that uh, allowed us to create a product that was I think far superior than anything that we had ever experienced. I'd say the luck portion of it was so when I I sat down early early days of the idea, I sat down with my dad and I was like, oh, you know, I've got this idea for a sock company. Yeah, you know, expecting him to be like, that's one of the worst ideas you've ever had. Um, but he was like, oh, you know, your godfather was in the sock business for 40 years. And I know that he did really well by himself. Uh, I can't remember what he did, but you should go talk to him. So I called him up, and it turns out that in the late 80s and early 90s, he was president and CEO of Gold Toe, and then left Gold Toe to start a private label sock manufacturing company, which ended up being one of the largest private label sock manufacturing companies in the world. Um, so falling into kind of expertise and somebody who literally knows every single supplier of socks in the world and knows how to manufacture any type of sock in the world was a massive advantage and something that I totally, totally attribute to luck. Um, the component that wasn't luck that I think once we started the R&D and design phase was the fact that we had no bias and no, you know, we weren't skewed by any preconceived notions in manufacturing. And I remember very vividly talking with one of our manufacturing partners, I said to them, I said, oh, I want to put a seamless toe on this athletic sock. 
They're like, why would you want to do that? They're like, that's wildly expensive. You only find seamless toes on you know Italian-made dress socks because they're so thin you can actually feel the seam. They're like, on, on athletic socks, you can't feel the seam because they're cushiony. And I was like, I can feel the seam. So like, I, I want to get a, you know, a seamless toe. And they're like, do you know how expensive that is on a per pair of sock base? So I was like, I don't know, you know, how much? And they're like, 10 cents a pair. And I was like, 10 cents? I was like, I can make up 10 cents. And my godfather was like, no, I used to make socks for less than a penny a pair. So he's like, this is why they're pushing back on this. But I think the fact that we were purely designing this, coming at it from a consumer's perspective and not coming at it from a manufacturing or you know reseller's perspective of, oh, well, we need to create a product that has this much margin so that we can – we didn't think about it. We were just like, let's create the best product possible and see if people like it. And so that's how we came to be. That's awesome. And yeah. I feel like in some ways that's not an uncommon story that the disruptors, one of their, their core advantages is they don't have pre- the bias of all these preconceived notions totally. of the, the people that did them before. In some ways, I, I, uh, I feel like I've heard similar iterations of that story from like the Tommy John guys totally. or you know a, a, a bunch of other uh, even, even Dollar Shave Club, yeah. like where um, if you had come from Gillette, it probably would have been harder to imagine uh, uh, reinventing the, the, the product like that. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so early on, the model was uh, that we we're going to put these socks on a website and sell them direct to consumer. And That's was right. that always the the idea? Like, did you guys ever kick around being a wholesale supplier of socks or I mean, so Randy and I came out of the online media business. So the online space was, I think, what we knew and I think we were the most comfortable. Um, I believe we also thought that, you know, early days, we, you know, I'd say early days, I mean, 2013 doesn't exactly feel like early days of the internet, but when you think about it, it's only e commerce has only been around for, you know, 20 plus years or so. Um, You know, it's still relatively, you know, early days. Uh, I think we thought that, you know, for building a brand around an otherwise commoditized product like a pair of socks, uh, we would need the the unlimited landscape and palette by which the Internet affords uh, to tell deep and enriching stories and produce really great content, uh, which is ultimately what builds great brands, or at least we believe build great, builds great brands. Um, and similar, you know, to like the Dollar Shave Clubs of the world, you know, I think having the ability to use things like video and, you know, deeply rich photographic content and copy in a way to talk about a really small product that on a store shelf would only get, you know, what, two inches of, you know, packaging space to tell a really, you know, how do you tell a deep story like that? And so I think our whole thesis early on was, let's see, let's put out, you know, content and a brand. That's why we launched on Indiegogo. Um, we created a three-minute video about socks. And, you know, we're like, I don't know, people are going to sit through a three-minute video about socks? Uh, ultimately, they did. And I think the product and and our brand resonated uh, with the customer base. And I think that's kind of set our path. I mean, I think we always talk, talked about, you know, wholesale at some point. Um, we just launched uh, small wholesale partnerships last year with Nordstrom's Dicks and QVC. Um but I think it wasn't – I think we felt like there was so much room and still believe there's still so much room to grow uh, online where you kind of really get to have that one-on-one relationship with the customer around an otherwise forgotten or not thought about product uh, like a pair of socks. Yeah, and uh, so I'm curious. One of the things a lot of DTC companies talk about is one of the – obviously 
easier to make higher margins when you're selling direct to the consumer. Um, but also a big thing is customer intimacy, and you get like the immediate feedback. What, what stuff customers liked, what they yep. didn't like. You hear directly from the voice of the customer. And so there's always this hypothesis, we can iterate our product faster, we can make our product better because we're directly connected to the customer as opposed to just hearing feedback from the Walmart buyer or something. Correct. Um, so, uh, and I'm always curious if that's marketing speaker, that's true. Like, are your socks the same as they were the day they launched or have you, have they evolved and iterated based on customer feedback? I mean, I think for us... I mean, it's it's not marketing speak. Um, I think a lot of the the ways that the company has evolved, and you know, I wouldn't say that we we changed our core product in a whole lot of ways. Um, I mean, without without any sort of ego, I think we nailed it. I think we we got it pretty right. But things like you he's know, doing a little dance while he's saying that, just so you know, <laughs> we uh, you know, I remember one one very distinct moment. Uh, you know, we. Through customer service, we kept getting a lot of outreach from people saying, "Why don't you make socks that are size 13 to 15?" And we're like, "You know, extra large. That's got to be a small market for us. You know, who's who's really going to buy them?" And we were like, "No, nah, let's put it on hold. Let's put it on hold." But like customer service, would be like, "We keep getting requests for extra large socks." And we're like, "Okay, fine. We'll produce a small number of extra large socks in kind of some of our core styles." Um, and it ended up representing 10 percent of our overall business. I mean, in the in the industry on a whole, I think it represents something like three to four percent. But I think because we were there listening to the market and then serving that market, we're owning a much larger share of that because we're producing a product for an otherwise probably over you know overseen uh, part of the demographic. Um, and so that was one instance. And then another one of the instances uh, was we you know early on. <laughs> You know, as I'm sure you hear from a lot of other DTC brands, you're scrappy. So, like, all of our photo shoots were basically like me and my other co-founders. We happen to be four white males, uh, and we get a lot of feedback from from customers of color, being like, you know, why don't you have, you know, why can't we Afri- get any good looking feed in that? Yeah, why don't you have African? <laughs> why aren't you representing African American yeah, yeah. feed or or you know or more people of color? And we were like, you're absolutely right. We should. You know, it wasn't something that. We had really thought about, um, but we took that feedback, and then immediately our next photo shoot, uh, we had a wide range of diversity, and, and it, now it still continues to be one of the pillars of all of our photo shoots and content going forward. Is that we we always learn from an eye of inclusive inclusivity and and uh, diversity, um, which I don't. If our stocks were on a store shelf, I don't know if we would ever if we ever would have gotten that feedback all the way back to us, but listening to our customers and having that relationship to, with them, we can react and say like, yeah, like we fucked up on that one. We oversaw it. Like shame on us. We'll fix it. You know, but we can, we have the ability to fix it pretty rapidly going forward. And the response that we get back from those customers is like, on the extra large, like, I can't believe you listened to me. We're going to buy a ton. And then, you know, the people who are proactive on the um, photo shoot stuff, you know, they wrote back at me and being like, wow, thanks for listening to me and, and implementing change. Yeah, you know, it, that's interesting because, uh, again, I feel like I've heard that similar story from, like, Andy Dunn at Bonobos. And it's, like, the the exciting takeaway from that for me is um, the the customer never had the relationship with that brand that was sitting on the shelf to even care. Right. Um, and so they, they felt like they had a better connection with you, gave you feedback, might have started off as a negative, but it turned into this 
this positive opportunity to get closer to the customer. I love that. Totally. Um, so uh, first place I can buy the socks is Indiegogo. I'm guessing you're going to tell me you were oversubscribed and that was a wildly successful launch. That's true. Um, and so, but back in 2013, you go, all right, now I got to stand up a website to sell these things. And in 2013, it might not have been totally obvious what the best way to do that was. So I'm just, I know uh, you're not the CTO, but I'm just curious, like, did you guys decide to build your own site from scratch? Did you find Shopify back then? Do you so, remember what you did? Yeah. So I actually had the fortunate nature of two of my co-founders uh, were former creative agency guys. Um, I won't so, hold that against them as a creative agency guy. It's been a, it's been a massive, massive uh, advantage to have them on our team. Um, so they both built uh, and designed a number of websites for, for clients in the past. So it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't that foreign to us. Um, and I think having worked at this media company, we put up a lot of microsites and kind of managed that aspect for, for different clients as well. Um, so at the time we were like, well, we want to be an enterprise company one day. So, you know, we're obviously going to go with Magento because Magento runs a lot of the enterprise, you know, software and they had Magento community and Shopify was not, I mean, they didn't have plus when we started. Um, I mean, it's amazing to see how how much they've grown over the years. But uh, probably one of the worst mistakes we made was not launching on Shopify to begin with. Um, you know, Magento ended up being a bear, uh, super resource intensive. You know, from all of the press spikes that we got on today's show, Good Morning America, Shark Tank, uh, every time our website would crash. Um, and it wasn't until we got on Shopify uh, eventually. Um, that we've never experienced any of that pain going forward. So I'm a big, big, big Shopify fan. Um, but yeah, I mean, it wasn't, you know, we, we signed up, we, we put up a Magento community site within about 30 days uh, post our Indiegogo campaign. Uh, to we really wanted to capitalize on Q4 sales that year. Um, and yeah, it was, it was relatively easy uh, against, again, again, barring against some of the, Bumps along the way. Uh, I think managing managing the site was not something that was super foreign to us. So. Sure, sure. And don't beat yourself up. I feel like the path forward was very much not clear in 2013. I feel like it was the not. I, I feel like the options of uh, uh, for for the incubation stage have cleared up. We couldn't afford um, manware. And yeah. So, uh, yeah. Fast forward, like your next problem, what you should be on when you're selling a billion dollars a year in socks. Like the answer is unclear at the moment. Correct. Too, but. But uh, that'll be a first-world problem, I think, to solve. Um, so then remind me how far along you were when you uh, went on Shark Tank. Uh, so we were 14 months – oh, no, 11, 13 months old. Uh, so we launched in August of 13, and our episode aired September of 2014. Uh, they had reached out to us um, in April. They had saw our Indiegogo campaign. Um, I think one of the things most people don't know is that there is an actually there is actually an active casting department at Shark Tank, uh, which is after being on it, I now and I watch the show pretty regularly. I now see they're like, yeah, we had a successful Kickstarter. I'm like, they found them on, you know, yeah, they they casted those people. Yeah, they were fishing. Uh, they weren't. Yeah. They, they didn't stumble upon. Yeah. yeah. So so one of the tips if you really want to get on Shark Tank, have a really successful Indiegogo or Kickstarter campaign because that's where they look. Um, so they reached out to us in April. We kind of thought of it as like a laugh to begin with. We were like, what, Shark Tank? Really? Like, I don't know. Do we want to do that? Like, we're like, I guess what's the harm? Um, 
and uh, went through went through the interviewing process, and you know, created the videos, and flew out there and filmed. Uh, and then you film, and they're like, "Cool, we you may or may never hear, you may or may not ever hear from us again. Uh, if you do, we'll let you know like a week or two before your episode airs. Um, don't plan on anything. Basically, in the meantime, run your business as normal. Uh, and so we were in the middle of fundraising at that time, and so um, you know, I was like, "Man, if we are going to be on Shark Tank, like." I want to be able to like use this as leverage to like raise a better valuation, but um, ultimately we closed the round uh, about four weeks before uh, <laughs> the episode aired. Um, you know, we get the call and they're like, "Your episode's going to air in two weeks." Not a whole lot you can do at that point. Uh, we staffed up significantly on customer service because we just didn't know. Uh, luckily, I'd talked to my friend over uh, Nick over at uh, Plated who had been on. Um, and you know he was like overstaffed customer service. He's like, that's the one thing like that you can actually do before you uh, go on air. Everything else is you can't buy more inventory, you can't fix the website. You know, you just gotta kind of cross your fingers and and hope it all goes well. Um, so yeah, we hired I think thirty customer service people and ended up I think scaling up to like fifty that weekend because it was just so overwhelming. Wow. Um, yeah, it's and it's crazy that you get so little notice. Um, there's an earlier iteration of that phenomenon, like Oprah's List. Sure, Oprah used to be on, yeah, yeah. and literally by the the end of Oprah's run, she had a full time team that just helped those entre- entrepreneurs like harden their business to get ready for the show airing because that's early kind on, of them. She put them out of business. Yeah, yeah, you can actually crush a yeah. business. And so um, my my sense is. Shark Tank is a lot more there now than it sounds like. Like I feel like that you get more notice than two weeks now. Is that I not don't true? I think or? so. Oh, okay. No, I mean at least not wow. from what I what, what I hear. Um, look, at the end of the day, ABC is trying to produce a television show, right? Yeah. I mean, I think they obviously have interests that you know they want to see their their entrepreneurs succeed, but at the end of the day, they have to protect their you know, share sure. IP and make sure that nothing leaks in advance. And, you know, they really want to control, you know, what businesses are going to be on and, and, and the messaging around them. And I think there's probably too much liability on their end for if they tell you too far in advance, it's probably going to leak that you're going to tell somebody and then it's going to end up in the press somehow. Um, like I think the yeah. press would really give a shit yeah. about it, but um, <laughs> yeah. it's like, cool, you're going to be on Shark Tank with along with nine other brands. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I hold, you know, I, th- I hold no like ill will against them. I mean, that's our interests are two different things. Right? Sure. We're trying to run a business, and they're trying to produce a television show. Sure. Um, as partners past Shark Tank, ABC has been incredible. Um, I mean, you really do become part of the ABC family when you when you close a deal with a shark, and you know, you get on Good Morning America, you get on The View, and they put products in, you know, The Bachelor and uh, Dancing with the Stars, and, and they do a lot of cross promotion across their platforms. Um, so they've been, they've been really fantastic since then, but in the early days, they're just like, look, you got to run your business, you sure. know, cause I also think they don't want to, cause I've, I've also advised a yeah. number of other, Shark oh, yeah, Tank don't companies. ramp up like you're gonna, yeah. And I have to say that, like, I'll say you have to, you know, prepare for the best case, but expect the worst Sure, because I've seen people who've bought hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of inventory and then they do like $10,000 in sales. Yeah. It's no telling. It's not like Oprah, where I think it's a little bit more. If Oprah endorses it, yeah. it's probably going to go through the roof. But if you go on Shark Tank with a, you know, alarm clock that fries bacon. 
uh, how many of those are really going to sell? One right here, but I take your point. <laughs> I bought one too. Um, but yeah, yeah, I totally, I totally get it. And uh, I know you're in the ABC family, so feel free not to comment. But like, I feel like early on, there were some entrepreneurs that were smart enough to say, "Hey, this is a great customer acquisition opportunity," and I don't really care if I get a deal. And I feel like one of the the secret things that that ABC has done to combat that is they now take like they charge a piece of equity just to be on the they show. They don't actually anymore. Oh no! So they did that for the first five seasons, but actually. Mark, I think, threatened to walk off the show um, because he felt like it was deterring good businesses from coming on the show. Because right? awesome. if you've got a ten or twenty million dollar business, you're not going to walk on the show and, and give up equity carte blanche without knowing really what the outcome is going to be. Um, and so, look, I think the way that they try to combat that, look, I think anybody will realize and admit. I mean, I can, you know, even being on it, yeah, it's a great, obviously, exposure opportunity. But what I will tell you in the research that I did going onto the show, from the like six or seven brands that I talked to, the people who ended up getting deals ended up having higher success rates from immediately, you know, airing the episode than those that don't. And I think there is a little bit of that Oprah effect where the customer validates the product or the business if a shark actually invests in it yep. versus if they don't. It's a trust symbol. It's a trust symbol. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's probably a number of cases where people have seen monumental success following the show just from the exposure. Um, but from our standpoint, we were really like, we want to create it. We want to do a deal because we know that it'll kind of guarantee um, you know a higher degree of success once we air. And then also, I'll say, following that, being a part of the ABC family and, the, and kind of the value that we've gotten since then, and obviously having a shark in our corner, um, you know, has certainly certainly paid for itself. I think that's awesome. And I just learned something which I totally appreciate. Uh, so remind us, you were funded. We were. And who who was your shark? Damon John? Damon John, who sort of in the space, so that was mm-hmm. probably uh, an aspirational shark to get. Um, I, I always chuckle in this particularly, I feel like comes to play with like um, uh, Robert and Mark is uh, I have a sense that like in general, the sharks are looking for good deals, right? Like, and so there very often is an argument that, that uh, you should give away more equity than you might to a, a traditional funding source. Sure. And part of their argument is always, we're going to bring all this support and expertise and technical help. And, and Mark's always, oh, and I'll take care of all your website and all that stuff. Right. Um, and as we now know from following a bunch of these, usually what that means is I'm going to throw you on Shopify. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, that could be good advice. I'm not sure how much equity I would want to give away right. for that advice alone. Right. Um, so I'm always curious to hear from sharks if they feel like, uh, that they're the uh, that they got more value than just the cash from their their shark. Uh, yeah, I mean, in our case, it, it w- it's really been uh, a level of mentorship. Um, you know, I think Damon will be the first uh, to admit, and he, he always says, you know, he gives us a ton of accolades. He's like, look, these guys understand e-commerce way better than I do. Um, you know, he understands the wholesale and brand building side of the world, but. There were moments where, you know, we were talking about going into new product categories or going into wholesale and, you know, having him as a sounding board, um, you know, and I think that that's why each of the relationships are super unique. I think in our relationship, it's been mutually beneficial uh, because, you know, we were two business guys that, you know, come from startup world, we come from the online background, kind of we knew how to build a brand, Um 
we knew how to kind of build, you know, scale online. We knew how to do digital marketing. So we weren't there calling him every step of the way being like, how do we do this? 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 And in some instances, you know, I think there are more entrepreneur uh, inventors rather than entrepreneurs who are like, I came up with this really cool idea in the, you know, my garage. I don't know the first thing about starting a business. And for them, the advice of go on Shopify is like, they wouldn't even know what Shopify yeah. was. So it's hard to argue, you know, if somebody doesn't know something and they get to a path of, you know, uh, there with the path of least resistance, you know, it what could, is the could, value? It could save you from an expensive mistake. Yeah. Like, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I I think it's, so A, I sit there with a box of popcorn and risking no personal capital heckling yeah. that show all the time. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I, th- I feel like has really evolved is all of their perspectives about the value of various channels, sure. right? And I feel like early on it was like, oh, you might do direct-to-consumer until you could get wholesale, but wholesale is the only way to get scale. Right. And I feel like more recently, and I, like Damon John in particular, he's referenced that he learned from you guys. And I feel like like I, there was at least one show where he mentioned, like, as a result of my experience with people like you, uh, I'm now a lot more leery about that wholesale model right. and a lot less excited about it. And I think he even says he's like pivoted his own business yep. based on some of those warnings. So that's a, like, you should be getting some equity back. I think <laughs> just uh, when he calls, I'll tell him. That. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, so, so that is totally awesome. Uh, one of the things that we see with a lot of direct-to-consumer companies is, based on your value proposition, there's a certain market out there that's really easy to acquire, mm-hmm. right? And, and that size of the market could wildly vary between different kinds of businesses. Sure. But whatever it is, you launch, you grow really fast, you, you get to that point, like where in the old world, if you're opening Gap stores, it might have taken you five or ten years to acquire all the customers that were predisposed to love you. Right. Today, you get all those customers in the first six months. Sure. And so you get this nice first spike. But then most companies hit this plateau where the new customers stop being quite so easy to acquire. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm always curious for, for folks like yourself who have kind of, uh, in my perspective, gone by that first tranche, like, like, did you go through that? And then what, what have you had to do and how do you think about things differently about acquiring customers today than you did back in your Indiegogo, Shark Tank, like, launch yeah. phase? So oh, how much time do we have? Okay. Yeah. Um, the recorder will go for 12 hours. <laughs> it's a great question. Um, I, think, I think it's obviously something that any D2C brand is constantly thinking about, right? When is this, when is this going to run out? Um, I think for us, you know, there are there are a number of levers that we continue to pull that allow us to continue to acquire customers profitably on first purchase, and that's always been our kind of marketing principle and guidelines from day one. Is that we were never going to chase LTV. We saw what it did to other companies. You know, you saw that overpaying on customers early on that you thought were going to repeat that didn't repeat. You know, ended up tanking the company. Um, so we were always thinking, okay, as long as we can focus on some of the core metrics that will define success in the business, which are produce a high margin product. So as long as you've got high margin, then you can, you've got a lot of dollars to work with. Then contribution margin on, on AOV. So if we start to reach a plateau in terms of being able to acquire that customer, how can we raise AOV? You know, one of the 
key things that we did from the beginning is we used to be a singles only company. Then we moved to packs. The day that we moved to packs, our AOV went from thirty six dollars to sixty dollars. Um, you know, since then we've introduced higher priced products. So we've got merino wool and you know ski socks, and you know our product mix has has grown from a merchandising perspective. So now our AOV is like eighty six dollars. Um, so we're constantly finding ways to combat. You know the the inevitable growth of cost per acquisition on a customer basis. So this year we're going to be introducing new product categories that'll have a much higher price point. Hopefully we'll raise this over the hundred dollar mark. Um, simultaneously, we're always looking to optimize channels, and I think one of the things that people are people undervalue or they don't think about, and this is one of the things I constantly advise uh, some of the early stage startups that I either invest in or mentor is the power of creative. Um, Really, really, really good creative can actually lower CPAs. Um, So when we introduced our our million pair video campaign, um, originally we were like, okay, this is just going to be a thank you to our customer base. We'll produce this video. Not really expected to go anywhere. And then our CMO was like, I want to test this in marketing. And we're like, okay, fine, go test this in marketing. But it's a, I don't know, it was like a two-minute long video. We're like, no way this thing is going to work online. it scaled so rapidly. Uh, we were getting like CPAs in like the nine dollar. Uh, you know, for for a few months, we were getting like low teen CPAs. You know, at the time when we were averaging, I think you know our average CPA was probably forty or fifty bucks at the time. Um, significantly dropped. That campaign ran uh, for over a year until it started to see fatigue. I think that video to date has over one hundred and fifty million views. Probably attributable to close to ten to fifteen million dollars of revenue off of that one single piece of creative, and so that was that was a real eye opener for us. Where we're like, wow, we need to constantly be reinvesting in in creative, and so we built out this full, basically internal agency model, which is nice because two co-founders, former agency people, we have a lot of that skill set internally, but we develop so much creative and we're constantly pumping it into the marketing field. Um, you know, and 90% of it is garbage, you know, it doesn't work. Um, but the 10% that does well, you kind of start to distill down and distill down and distill down. And the power I think of e-commerce is that you are being able to see when you put money behind an ad, you're able to see what's performing and why it's performing and on what audience basis it performing well. And then you could try to replicate that across similar audiences and then tweak it and as long as that engine and you start to build you know, that engine up um, and start to leverage the data, you can start to become really, really smart about the way. But you also have to be willing to take risks. Um, this one piece of creative that we came up with uh, last year, our laundry back guarantee, where we basically said, if you ever lose one of a pair of Bombas in the laundry, we'll replace it for free, it did horribly on Facebook. And our CMO was like, well, I think this is such a great campaign. It got such great press coverage. Like, let's put it on TV. And I was like, why are we spending any more money on this piece of creative? It did terribly on Facebook. Why do you think it's going to do well on TV? And miraculously, it did really, really well on TV. So, you know, I think the ability to kind of create content, test it, iterate it, but also be able to take risks on where you're publishing that content um, with an eye, again, towards those metrics um, is for us what what has allowed us to continue, and also diversifying channels. I think that was the other thing. I think realizing 
I mean, early on, I think 90% of all of our spend was on Facebook. Um, our budget continues to double every year on Facebook, but Facebook, I think, represents 40% Smart. of our overall spend today. To the pie. TV represents a large part. Podcasts, audio, direct mail. I mean, every single of these channels add up. Um, you know, direct mail is great CPAs, hard to scale it. You know, it doesn't scale like TV and Facebook, but it gives us, you know, really, really competitive CPAs. So having the overall mix bring, you know, the overall cost per acquisition, Facebook is higher these days. Um, but as a blended mix, that's all we really care about. While we also think one of the other advantages of our business is because socks are a replenishment item naturally. Um, you know, we have a very, very high repeat rate and repeat is what ultimately drives the profitability of the, of the company. Um, so that gives us the ability to reinvest into new channels. And, you know, again, not every business is as, you know, fortunate or set up the way that, you know, our margin structure is, or, you know, some of the repeat rates, but sure. It's what's allowed us to scale. Yeah. That's why, uh, you'd spend some time picking the right product categories. Yeah. Uh, the so side note that that seems like one uh, path to success is to be really smart about your performance marketing and and uh, do great executions and really agonize on the creative and try lots of different things and learn. That's one way to go. It, the other way to go is to just spend like a drunken sailor and then ho- <laughs> hope to get acquired or go public before anyone notices. So I'm just saying for listeners. Two paths you choose. It's not, I would recommend against the last path. Personally. I would too, but like Mark Lori does not seem like he's stressful. struggling. <laughs> um, yeah, I think those are fewer and farther between. I, no, I think if you look at the acquisitions that Walmart made, you know, what did they buy Modclath for? Seventy million dollars, and they raised seventy-five. Yeah, no. I don't know. I don't think anybody I, really I think the did only, well on that deal. I think the only one that wasn't a value acquisition was Jet for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, our, Bonobos was was in there somewhat. I think it was close to like one times revenue. Yeah, um, which it, like I would argue, I'd like to get a lot more. Yeah, um, sure. but uh, uh, that story may not be closed yet. We uh, we, we, we shall see. Um, one tactic you didn't mention, but I feel like uh, I have not been in a in a car in the last year and not have you remind me about the seam in my socks. Yep. Uh, is, is radio a really effective part of the mix? Killer. Yeah. Yeah. Podcasts, radio, audio, uh, serious all the way across the board. Um, that continues to be one of our largest growing, uh, or fastest growing, um, channels by spend. Um, I think we have tripled, tripled spend in audio over the last two years. Um, it represents probably 15% of our overall spend now. Um, yeah, we can, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit more hit or miss. I think it's like TV. I think you've got to find the channels that resonate for you. Uh, and there's not, it's not endless. I mean, we'll find a podcast that does really well for us. And then I think we saturate it over time. Um, and then it stops performing. Uh, so we have to kind of move on. It was equate audio to kind of mining for gold, right? You might find, you know, one that does really well, you dig really deep and then the, you know, the, you know, the mind dries up and you got to find something else, but across the board audio does pretty well, but it's time consuming for sure. Cause you've got to vet it, you know, it's uh, you got to create the spots. Um, I'm curious, uh, podcasts in particular, uh, one, one thing that podcasts are notorious for is like the attribution model is kind of tough. It's tough. Um, so you tend to see products that are like really fast, direct sell, direct call to action, and it's usually you're tracking attribution based on like a URL or a promo code. Yep. Is that how you guys look at podcasts, or do you feel like you have some sense for 
awareness um, building and that kind of thing. Like if anybody, I think, I think if there was anybody who figures out how to do uh, multi-channel or multi-touch attribution in e-commerce well, I think they would, uh, you know, I think they would be the next multi-billion-dollar company. Um, honestly, we rely on a pretty easy uh, way. We do, we do. How did you hear about us? Surveys um, and. You know, we cross metric that against uh, you know the the data coming through the coupon codes or the sites. But what you'll find, and you know, I think the big it's not maybe it's not a big secret, but I think uh, what most companies do is the same offer that you'll get by just landing on their website is the same offer that they'll promote within a podcast or on a radio show. Um, so what we end up getting is a lot of people just type in bombas.com and see the promo offer of 20% off your first order, and then they just go through that. What we find is we get probably uh, a four times attribution on the how did you hear about a survey uh, when we overlay that data. Um, you know, so if it was a $100 CPA off a specific podcast, it'll come down to about $25 bucks, Um once we kind of overlay the how did you hear. But, you know, we're in so many channels now, it starts to become really challenging. Like, did they first learn about us on podcasts? Was that the last t- touch point of attribution? How many times did they, you know, see us on Facebook or television or, you know, direct mail, which was the channel that ultimately got them over the hum? Um, which is why we're, I think, while we monitor channel by channel, you know, cost per acquisition to look at efficiency, I think the thing at the end of the day that we really, really care about is just overall cost per acquisition across all channels. Um, that's that's truly the one metric that allows us to know whether we're on the right path or not. Got it. So that ends up being your sort of next best dollar calculus is, yeah. is customer acquisition cost, which yeah, yeah. makes perfect sense. Uh, that's a perfect segue uh, to my next question. You mentioned earlier in the show that you're just starting to pilot some some uh, wholesale partners. Yep. And I'm curious, are you thinking of that as a separate channel and separate P&L and just evaluating the ROI from that channel on its own? Or are you thinking about that exposure in those those high traffic retailers as a customer acquisition marketing tactic as well. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a mix of both. Um I think that when I you know, when I when I look at the future of the company and and you know, we have plans to be a you know, billion dollar company in the next 10 years, um I don't think that the rate at which e-commerce is growing will we be able to necessarily do be able to do a billion dollars of revenue just online. I mean, look, people like Fashion Nova are Proving that you know you can do seven hundred million dollars of revenue online, which is like I think the, a first for a branded only retailer, non marketplace retailer, to be doing those kind of numbers. Um, I think I think more and more brands will get there. But when I look at our strategy and kind of diversifying where we're going to get growth from, I need to be a little bit more strategic about it and not kind of put all my eggs in one basket. And so I still see a large opportunity at wholesale. I think there's a lot of other brands that are in our space. I look at Stance, you know, over a hundred million dollar a year company predominantly at wholesale. So when I look at that, I'm like, okay, well, what part of the market share, you know, can I take, you know, how big can Bombas be? And not necessarily competing against Stance. I mean, when we interview our customers, the majority of our customers are coming from brands like Hanes, Fruit of the Loom, uh, you know, jockey, um, they're, they're buying up rather than buying over. Um, and so when I look at how big of a market share those brands have at retail, I'm like, well, if we're doing this online, we surely should be able to carve out a nice little business for us at wholesale. Um, 
that will just add to the revenue stack overall. But you know, interestingly enough, when we launched at Nordstrom's, uh, Dick's, uh, Nordstrom's and Dick's specifically, we were over-indexing pretty significantly against every other stock in the category. Um, and I remember I was like, I can't believe, you know, I knew that we would, you know, I'm confident that we were going to be successful at, at retail uh, or wholesale, but I didn't think that we would be two to three times, you know, the sell-through rate of, of the next best-selling stock in the category. And I remember sitting down with our private equity partner, and they were like, well, you realize there's not another sock brand on the shelf spending $40 million a year on marketing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, right. So I think that we're benefiting at wholesale from a lot of the radio ads and TV and stuff that we're thinking is all direct response, yep. but is actually having a lift at wholesale as well because there's brand recognition and people are walking through the stores or you know, maybe they're listening to us in the car and then they get into a Nordstrom's and they're like, oh, right, that's the brand I just heard about. I'm going to buy a pair of those. Um, I don't think we ever kind of really thought about the uh, the overlap effect that our online our online marketing I just did air quotes um, would have in the offline world. I'll put the air quotes in the show notes okay, so great, people perfectly. can see them. Uh, yeah, uh, a fascinating observation, and uh, I'll leave it to you to interpret. But the you know you you talk about hitting that like billion dollar threshold, and you say like how many direct to consumer like native brands have got to know a billion dollars and it's it's pretty small pretty right small. now. Um, and then you go, all right, well, what about the traditional house of brands that dominate the retail shop? Sure. The VF Corps, the Haynes, like how many billion yeah. dollar brands have they built in the last 10 years? Smaller. Right. Um, so do you know where all the new 10 billion or billion dollar run rate brands are coming from? The retailers. It's it's Cat and Jack. It's like Target's launched 5 billion dollar brands in the right. last 2 years. Uh, Kroger has billion dollar brand. It's crazy, right? Um, and so there like is Airy, right? Airy, yeah. co- coming out of Aeropostale, yeah. Um, Another mess. So there brand. is this. Um, to me, there's something to like the a pr- and I don't like using private label because I actually think these new brands are are uh, evolution of private totally. label. Um, it's not just a cheaper version of the national no, no, brand no, they on put the shelf. Like brand, yeah. They market them. All, they have yeah, microsites. Yeah. They do yeah, all these yeah. things. But you think about it. What the common denominator of those brands is. That retailer has the same customer intimacy that a direct-to-consumer brand has. They know the customer. They have a direct relationship. Um, and then they have a, uh, the scale, visibility, and low customer acquisition costs that retail some, uh, you know, affords, like, if all that infrastructure has already been amortized somewhere else. Totally. Um, and so, it is, like, I do look and I, uh, and I say, like, man, part of the equation for digitally native brands to get to billions of dollars probably means some, you know, some blend of that, that brick and mortar presence as totally. well. Um, so this has all been great. I, I do, uh, just in case I was stupid enough not to ask any, que- uh, the right question. Um, is there anything that you feel like you've learned in this run that would surprise new entrepreneurs or new direct to consumer brands that, that you'd care to share with us? Yeah, I think I think one of the biggest pieces of advice that I got really, really early on um, from one of my friends who worked at Tom's was uh, the the ability to focus or remain focused on a relatively small product set. Um, you know, when I remember when we had done like five hundred thousand dollars in sales, I was like, "Oh, we're we're killing it, right? We did five hundred thousand dollars in sales in our first six months. Like, we need to be producing shirts and underwear and sweatpants and sweatshirts." And he sat down and he was like, 
we at Tom's, he's like, we sold the first, we sold one silhouette in five colors for the first, I think, like four years, right? And built like a multi hundred million dollar company off of that. He's like, don't underestimate how small you are, uh, or don't overestimate how small you are um, compared to like the larger population. And I have to, you know, we're a, I don't even know, we're over a hundred million dollar brand today. And I'm, Still, and now I'm not surprised by you know by it as much when I meet people and they're like, oh, I don't know, I've never heard of Bombas before, right? Because it's just like more humbling at this point where I'm I have to assume that nobody has has heard of us despite our size. Um, and even I think that puts it in perspective. You can be a brand over a hundred million dollars, you know, go to the middle of the country and ask people what Warby Parker is. I guarantee you, most of them are like, I don't know, never heard of Warby Parker. I think I remember I was somewhere and I was like, oh, Casper mattresses, and they're like, what? Like, yeah. What's a Casper mattress? And I'm like, right, you live outside of like New York and LA and, you know, some of the bubbles that we live in. And, you know, these brands don't penetrate quite as deeply as, you know, as you may think they are. And that's why brands, I think, like Target are able to, you know, spin up brands in a much easier rate because they own those customer bases across every single geographic and demographic, uh, you know, position. So I would say don't, they're, like, don't overestimate your size and stay focused on the one thing that you do really, 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 really well. And for us, that was producing socks and selling them online. And that's why we didn't get distracted by going to wholesale. We didn't get distracted by producing other products. Here we are five and a half years later, we still just sell socks. Um, you know, and I still think that we've got, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars more just in our core product category, just online. That that is awesome, and don't forget to get out of the New York, uh, LA bubble. Sometimes yeah. figure out what the customer in Muskogee wants. Totally, um, the Muskogee is a uh, in Oklahoma, okay. but it's a uh, people at Walmart frequently talk about like that's the prototypical Walmart customer in Got Muskogee. Random facts on the Jason and Scott show. <laughs> uh, so uh, we're running out of time. I want to get one last question in. Uh, when you and I are back at this show five years from now, uh, do you have any sense for how the, the market and the world might be different? Like, do you have a, a view for the future of, of brands? And, like, do we have the same assortment of direct-to-consumer and wholesalers and things that we have today? I think there will be, in my opinion, I think there's going to be some consolidation. I think uh, I think it would be great if, you know, I think there's so much efficiency to be had by rolling up some of these e-commerce brands together, by centralizing marketing, centralizing back office operations. Um, you know, I think Andy at, you know, Walmart, that was kind of their, you know, what he was charged with. I'd love to see him pull it off. Um if not him, I think there's, you know, I think somebody should should come into the space and and kind of wrap up a bunch of these big brands to make them even bigger. Um, so that's what I'm kind of hoping for over the next five years. And and you know, I'll, I bet you will also start to see. Uh, I'd like to hopefully see some more acquisitions um, in this space that aren't that that are not billion dollar acquisitions, right? I think, you know, the hundred million, two hundred million dollar acquisitions for the small, you know, like the native uh, you know, deodorant company, right? I think those are, you know, and and the next round of entrepreneurs that I'm meeting, interestingly enough, are all in the product categories that they're all developing, are not sitting down being like, I've got the next billion dollar idea. I think they're sitting down and being like, I see an opportunity to carve out a forty million dollar you know, market in this direct-to-consumer space, and hopefully somebody will acquire us for 100 to $120 million. 
And I think that's the right mindset of this next round of entrepreneurs. You don't need to go out and raise 50 to $300 million of capital to build this behemoth brand that's going to take you know world domination and be the next P&G. Um, you know, I think I think we'll start to see a little bit more of a fragmented space and smaller smaller fundraises and smaller uh, relatively smaller acquisitions. Interesting, and that like so, uh, I frequently talk about the fact that like a hundred million dollar business can be a great business. Great business. Uh, it, it, uh, it can earn a great living for a bunch of employees. It can solve a consumer problem, and uh, the challenges with businesses in that size is they don't offer the return on investment for the traditional VC model. And so if you build your company based on that VC model, like that VC does not want you to see We could have a whole nother podcast (laughs) about VCs and where I think their place is in building direct to consumer brands personally. So that's, that's kind of what I was like in the short version of that. Like you talked about raising less. Um, When you say raising less, do you think that's raising less from the traditional funding sources or do you think that's uh, uh, newer funding sources? I mean, you know, I use us as an example. I mean, we, we we raised a million dollars of seed funding and three million in our A, and haven't raised a single dollar ever since. So we raised four million dollars in total and built a hundred million dollar company in five and a half years. That's super profitable. It can be done, right? You don't need to go out and raise fifty to a hundred million dollars to build a hundred million dollar company. And it's like that. That's like to me is like asinine thinking. And so this next wave of entrepreneurs, I think they're looking at margin, they're looking at cost per acquisition, they're looking at contribution. Um, they're looking at the financials in a much more strategic way. And they're also not just looking at online. They're looking at omni-channel. They're being a lot more strategic about how they're bringing products to market and you know how they're acquiring customers and realizing that there's a subset of angel investors and there's a new wave, I think, of, of D2C entrepreneurs like myself and Andy and you know Jeff Rader and all these other D2C CEOs that are now investing in this next wave of companies and saying, you don't need to go raise... Twenty million dollars from you know first round or any of these other big you know uh, no knock on them. I just think that they serve a great purpose in in, in funding technology based companies that require massive amounts of capital that don't have ninety percent margin profiles that shouldn't you know that 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 don't don't generate cash in the first year. But like if you've got retail brands have been being built for the last hundred years without. Massive amounts of VC funding because if your business is set up correctly as a consumer business, you should generate profit on your product. Like it, it sounds crazy to be like stating that as a fact today, but like you're fundamentally, if you have the right model set up, your business should generate cash and that cash at scale should be able to fund growth. I don't know. That's a wildly controversial position. I'm sure uh, sarcasm fully intended. <laughs> uh, totally agree. And I feel like that's a great place to leave it because we've done it again. We've blown through our allotted time, right. making some people stay at the gym a little extra long for yeah. this episode, which I like. Get those extra reps. Uh, exactly. God knows I need them. Uh, if folks uh, have some comments or questions about the show, feel free to jump on our Facebook page. We'll continue the conversation there. As always, if you really enjoyed this episode, we'd sure appreciate it if you jump on iTunes and give us that five-star review. Uh, Dave, if folks want to connect with Bombas or, or follow some more of your uh, thought leadership, is there a place on the internet that's best to hang out? Are you a Twitter guy? I'm or? not a Twitter. I'm actually not a social media user, much to my communications department's uh, chagrin. <laughs> but um, I can put your mobile phone number in the show notes if that <laughs> no, would be better. Don't. It's out there somewhere. I get a lot of random phone calls from from 
vendors. But uh, no, I mean Bombas.com. We've got you know Bombas on on uh, on uh, Instagram. Um, so that's what the kids are using these days. But I'll plug that we've got fifty five open positions uh, at the company right now. Uh, we've got an incredible company culture. So if you're interested in a job in New York, uh, go on our career pages and definitely uh, apply. That is awesome. And that that best path there is the career page yeah. on bombas.com. Cool. Yeah. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Cool. Dave, really appreciate your time. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much, Jason. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 